So tonight I'd like to frame uh, this talk in a, with using one of the frameworks that Tuary gave us, which I loved, which was uh, perceiving and getting a sense that this is the middle of the retreat, the heart of the retreat, rather than the end of the retreat. And I find that so helpful. Like, here we are, we're in the middle, and then Tuesday, the next segment is going to be coming, another six-week retreat or three-month retreat. And it is true, the context is going to be a little bit different. (laughs) But really, it's the same practice, different context, same practice. And using that framework, that means that this is just the warm-up. You've had three months to do your warm-up for the real retreat, the next three months. Or maybe you did a smaller warm-up of six weeks. And you get the real retreat, the next six weeks. And uh, when I was a Zen monk, Sometimes retreats would be framed that way. We'd have what was called Jadori session. And Jadori session was a session as a retreat or a seven-day retreat. And you'd, you'd have a seven-day retreat, a Jadori session, which was the preparation for the Dai session, the great session. It was the, the more intense session. So this is your Jadori session for the the great retreat that is facing you in a few days. And there's a, another dimension of practice that is so important for this next retreat that you've already begun to dip your toes in just a little bit. You did that this afternoon. This realm of connecting, this realm of communication. It is so rich and so complex, and maybe you've already noticed that just with the little bit of a taste that you got this afternoon. And I want to point out, maybe the obvious, hopefully, silent meditation on its own, it is not going to refine your skill of mindfully communicating. (laughs) It really isn't. I don't know where I thought that when I was a Zen monk. We didn't do much wise communication, and I remember leaving there. My communication was not that great. Even though I could probably sit through anything, my communication was horrendous. The skill of mindful, mindfully communicating, what does it arise from? From actually practicing mindfully communicating. This is a practice that I come back to again and again and again. It's so important. And in terms of this, this uh, framework, the, this quote from uh, Archilochus, this uh, Greek lyric, lyrical poet, fits. He says, we do not rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. And I find this helpful because sometimes I go about in the world and I expect, I hope that my communication will be really skillful. But that's not going to be the case. Just expecting and hoping doesn't get me very far. But rather training, coming back to this again and again and again. To train in speaking, to train in listening. 
because especially during tough times, I'm going to fall to the level of my training. And if I have training, it's there for me. It will catch me. And what I'd like to focus on tonight is just the listening aspect. Just this aspect of being able to listen to others. It's so important, at least it has been for me, and maybe if you reflect, I know that often when I've experienced difficulties, whether that's been in friendships or partnerships or the difficulties in communities or larger conflicts and political tensions, so many of those dimensions can be seen around the challenge and being able to hear another, to listen to another, deeply listen to another. So I find it's important for my life and I I find it's important for this world that we live in together. The Buddha speaks to this, this value. And you find this in the uh, Pali Canon, this uh, interchange between two monastics. So once upon a time, in Jitta's Grove, in Anattapindika's Park, the monastic, uh, the venerable Kotita, he approached Sariputta and he, he had a number of questions just about the spiritual life, the holy life. And one of the questions was, what is necessary for the arising of wise view for this first factor of the Eightfold Path? And remember, maybe just to simplify it here to to bring some meaning to this, wise view has, has so many dimensions. One way of understanding it, one dimension of it, is it's just this view that my actions have consequences. Or more broadly, if I have the sense that my actions have consequences, that I'm holding this view, I'm holding this value of uh, determining how I should act and be in the world. What are the things that are going to allow me to act skillfully in the world? What are the things that are going to allow me to feel kindness and compassion towards others. And then Sariputta answers, the voice of another and wise attention. This is what's needed. I need to hear the voice of another with wise attention. because it's going to inform the kindness and compassion I have for others, for myself, and for the whole world, if I can deeply hear the voice of another with wise attention. So the first part, hearing the voice of another. How can I do this in a skillful way? And I want to share with you some words from uh, the late Eugene Genlin. Uh, Eugene Genlin, uh, he started something, this uh, approach called focusing. 
but he also did a lot of philosophical writing too and started kind of this philosophical approach called Thinking at the Edge. And he had a psychotherapeutic background. So these words are kind of spoken about the psychotherapeutic context, but I find they speak to me about what it is to truly listen and how I need to show up. He says, I want to start with the most important thing I have to say. The essence of working with another person is to be present as a living being. And that is lucky. Because if we had to be smart or good or mature or wise, then we would probably be in trouble. But what matters is not that. What matters is to be a human being with another human being. To recognize the other person as another being in there. And then he continues. So when I sit down with someone, I take my troubles and feelings and I put them over here on one side, close, because I might need them. And then I'm just here with my eyes and there is this other being. If they happen to look into my eyes, they will see that I'm just a shaky being. I have to tolerate that. They may not look, but if they do, they will see that. They will see the slightly shy, slightly withdrawing, insecure existence that I am. And I have learned that that is okay. I don't need to be emotionally secure and firmly present. I just need to be present. There are no qualifications for the kind of person I must be. I find this both relieving and inspiring. It's such a relief to hear that I don't have to be smart or wise or good. I don't have to be emotionally secure. I just need to be okay with myself and to be present. And I don't even need to be firmly present just to be here as another human being with my difficulties right here. I think that really is to me the essence, the most important thing about listening to the voice of another, just that.
So what can get in the way of this? All kinds of things can get in the way. One of the things I notice that can get in the way are my own views, and they can be so subtle. My own views, thinking I already know people somehow. And this is definitely even more the case around people who I feel like I really know, like family and my partner and friends. I come into communication with them feeling like I already know what they're going to say. And when they speak, I feel like I've already gotten to the end of the sentence before they have. Have you ever noticed this with people that you're close to? Am I the only one who does this with my partner? <laughs> it's, it can be so deeply ingrained, like I, I get habituated to the person in front of me who, who I really don't know. So there's this, uh, the Buddha talks about this, this attachment to views, this adherence to views, a fixation on views, almost an addiction to views. It's a holding firmly to views. We do this, or I do this, and I'm guessing maybe you do too. It's rooted, I think, the, the phrase I use to kind of get a feeling sense of, uh, of this for myself, and this can uh, express itself very strongly or it can be quite subtle, which is this notion, I'm right. I am so right. <laughs> and the thing about right, I don't know if you've, you know this feeling, like it can feel so good to be Right. You know what I'm talking about? How good it can feel to be right. And then that's where my mind lingers is being right. It feels good. The author, Catherine Schultz, uh, writes about this in one of her books called On Being Wrong. <laughs> she asked the question, why is it so fun to be Right. I mean, as pleasures go, it is, after all, a second-order one at best. I mean, unlike many of life's other delights, chocolate, surfing, kissing, it does not enjoy any mainline access to our biochemistry, to our appetites, our adrenal glands, our limbic systems, our swoony hearts. And yet the thrill of being right is undeniable, universal, and perhaps most oddly, almost entirely undiscriminating. We can't enjoy kissing just anyone, but we can relish being right about almost anything. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about here? It's true, isn't it? It's like there's this allure to feeling like I'm right about this world that I live in. This is the allure of views that the Buddha is talking about. 
So tomorrow, as you begin to communicate more and you start to have those discussions, just to notice when you're in a conversation and you feel that coming on, oh, I feel so right about this. They're kind of wrong about this. I know I'm right about this. The allure of that. And especially the feeling of it, how it pulls you in in some way, how it throws you off balance in terms of really fully listening. And it's because the feeling, at least I know, can be so compelling that sometimes I just want to get to the point where I can share what I'm right about, (laughs) what I know. That's so different than actually just being present for the being in front of me. Actually to rest back into the insecure existence that I'm in that I don't know. To notice that. And as I've mentioned before, this phrase I love to use, it's used often in many contexts that when I'm deeply attached to when I'm right, I like to say to myself, do do I want to be right or do I want to be free? And if I really want to be free of this attachment to I am right, I need to be open to being wrong. And again, Catherine Schultz around this. She says, of all the things we are wrong about, this idea of error might well top the list. It is our meta-mistake, M-E-T-A. It is our big mistake. We are wrong about what it means to be wrong. Far from being a sign of intellectual inferiority, the capacity to err is crucial to human cognition. Far from being a moral flaw, it is inextricable from some of our most humane and honorable qualities, empathy, optimism, imagination, conviction, and courage. And far from being a mark of indifference or intolerance, wrongness is a vital part of how we learn and change. Thanks to error, we can revise our understanding of ourselves and amend our ideas about the world. I need to be willing to notice how wrong I am about how I see others. I mean, others, right? I'm I'm, I'm face to face with this being who is so vast, so infinite in so many ways. It's almost like any kind of concept I have at some point will be undermined given the way my heart has been touched by the other when it's fully open. I remember um, my partner was reading this book and I I still have the image because sometimes the way she likes to read is she'll walk around the house a little bit with the the book open and kind of reading or just standing and moving around. And as she was reading it, um, throughout those days or a week or two while she was reading it, each time she was wrong about something, like we'd be in the house together, she'd be like, this is so cool. I was wrong about that. 
Oh, and I was wrong about this this morning. It's so interesting. I just found that out. And it was so contagious to be around that. Somebody who was getting excited about being wrong. And it made so much sense because that's where the learning was. That's where the opening was. What a beautiful thing. Wow, I'm wrong about that. That's so cool. So if you discover you're wrong tomorrow, to celebrate, what a cool thing. (laughs) So may you be wrong tomorrow and feel some joy. (laughs) And maybe a broader way of understanding being wrong is... Uh, more nuanced way is I'm not aware of the whole picture. And this harkens back to this the, the talk I gave you about perception. I, I shared with you that quote from Dogen where he said, when the Dharma fills you, when you're filled with the Dharma, when you're filled with wisdom, you know that something is missing. Right? And, and, and then he gave that example of being in the boat in the middle of the ocean. It looks round, but that's only as far as your eye can see. A wise person knows that that's just one way of perceiving. That's just one view. I always know that something's missing from how I'm viewing the person in front of me. And this can happen so quickly where we make these ideas around others and they can happen upon us, uh, sometimes without us knowing. I remember I was going for a walk in Flagstaff where I live. I was walking down the street, passing these houses, and I remember passing the street and um, there was a political sign of the person I was not going to be voting for. (laughs) I kept on walking, and my mind started to reflect about the people who lived in that house. Not only about the people who lived in the house, about how horrible those people were, how they were bad people ruining our world. And I remember getting worked up about it. It's like, I can't believe we have these kind of people in in our neighborhood. I had no idea if there was any people in that house whatsoever. I had just conjured up these people. (laughs) And I felt like I knew all about them because of a political sign that was in the yard. It was just a name on a sign. And I felt like I knew. Listening can't happen in such a mind if I already know. And, And this is so important to remember as you begin to interact a bit more tomorrow. And I'm framing this just so that that this realm of connecting and communicating and speaking and listening, you're you're framing as practice. Noticing how our minds create views of people. And sometimes this doesn't happen in the realm of aversion, like the example I gave you, but in the realm of grasping. 
So I want to point out, every year in this transition time towards the end of the three-month retreat, there's a person, or you could say people, who feel attracted to another yogi on retreat who they really don't know. See them. There's a scene of the person and then there's this attraction. And then this person feeling attracted to this other person ends up pursuing them in a way that ends up being hurtful. This happens every year. So it's kind of like, here's this person, and this person over here has this attraction to this other person. And then there's some communication. This person's kind, this person's kind. But when this person is kind, the person with the attraction is like, oh, they're kind. Oh, they like me. (laughs) (laughs) And then this person's like, oh, I think I should pursue them more, ask to talk more or stick around more. And this person's a practitioner, so they're still trying to be kind. And all this person can see is like, oh, they're still being kind. That means they like me. And then this continues. So if you have an attraction like this towards some person on retreat who you really don't know, you need to be careful Right? The mind's interpreting things through that lens. They're just a kind practitioner. Remember, you do not see things as they are. You see them as you are. This is where listening more deeply is so important. It's noticing how my mind creates these worlds. And hopefully you're hearing how this is tied to ethics, how I am with others. The the Dharma teacher, Catherine McGee, I, I love how she words the five precepts. She rewords them. She, she says the, uh, the way she frames it is, knowing each act of perception is a weaver of worlds. I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. May I respect all life. Oh, I understand how this heart weaves a world. And I need to be careful because of that. So I have this sensitivity to have uh, an awareness of these worlds this mind creates out of either aversion or attraction. Because then I can just be a human being with another human being, as Eugene Genlin says. To recognize the other person as another being over there. So hearing, hearing the voice of another. And then hearing the voice of another with wise attention. You know, the numerical discourses, the Buddha, the Buddha clarifies uh, 
of this when he states that the two conditions that give rise to unwise view or wrong view is the voice of another, but it's when it's coupled with uh, inappropriate or wrong attention, unwise attention. I can listen to others in a way that I'm not being wise. There's no compassion that's going to arise from that. So what is wise attention? You know, the, the, the Buddha explains the way to attend wisely and to keep it simple. Wise attention is having this attention towards, uh, the, with the sensitivity to the Four Noble Truths. Like wisely attending uh, with them in mind, or to put it in words that kind of fit for this talk, I wisely attend by having in mind my own suffering, the suffering of others, and the suffering of the whole world. And then when I'm listening in that way, I can really hear the person in front of me speaking, to really hear their world and to have a sensitivity to, to these dynamics. And to broaden the sense of wise attention, the, the Pali word is yoniso manisikara, and I love how Joanna Macy explains this term and what it implies. She, she says that it implies the web of interdependence in which phenomena participates. Or in other words, uh, when I'm listening to the voice of another with wise intention, I keep in mind that that voice of another arises out of a whole host of causes and conditions. And I'd like to give an example of this around something that you're probably going to have as part of your retreat, your next retreat your six-week retreat or your three-month retreat. And that's navigating difficult people. How do I listen to the voice of another, even a difficult person with wise attention? And this is what I find so helpful. Can I remember, can I, get a, can I have my ears hear the causes and conditions that give rise to their voice? and what they're, they're sharing. And this fits with this, I think, value, a value at least that I have. It's a quote attributed to uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, which says, while nothing is easier than to denounce the unskillful or the evildoer, he says, but I'll use the, the phrase unskillful person. While nothing is easier than to denounce the unskillful person, nothing is more difficult than to understand them. And I find that it's been so important for me to learn to understand the voice of another when it's a voice that I have difficulty with. And when I say understand, it doesn't mean I agree with that voice of another or I condone their actions or their behaviors. It means that I understand. It doesn't mean that I'm trying to justify their actions 
or their point of view. I'm just trying to understand. I find understanding so important in terms of navigating this world that we live in, especially in this context. And I want to give a caveat to deeply understanding the voice of another that difficult person because I think there's some caveats to this. Like if I'm in the midst of healing from some deep harm from someone, sometimes it's not physiologically appropriate to go in this direction because what my physiology needs is sometimes it needs to have a more simple narrative for it to come back into a place of safety and settling. Like, there's a place temporarily to have a sense of good and bad and to be just having it that simple. That was bad. That was not good. That was harmful. And that's it. That's an important narrative in our lives sometimes. And I don't want to dismiss that because that can be a different kind of harm of I need to be somewhere else where my physiology is telling me I just need to feel a bit safe and protected now and then I can do that exploration later. So to remember this caveat as you go through your life that we have to listen to our hearts and where we're at to get a sense of what kind of practice that I'm going to engage in. And if the time is right, I, I have found this to be a rich practice. Like, I, I like to ask myself, you know, when am I seeing someone as being just wrong or they're bad? Those are the people I need to understand. I want to hear their voice with wise attention. I want to hear the causes and conditions there. And again, this isn't about agreeing or condoning. It's about understanding and the compassion that arises from understanding. There's a whole range of where I can uh, explore this. It could be really wanting to hear the voice of another, of that argument that I had with a friend And I need to listen more deeply to understand. Maybe not to agree, but to understand. Or some person in my community, or some person in the community, in the country I live in, or in the world I live in. So I remember going through this process once. It It was actually quite a few years ago. It was, uh, and this was before the pandemic, a number of years before the pandemic. And I did what's called a um, uh, a police ride along, which meant that I I uh, signed up and I was got to ride along with a police officer in his car for part of his shift. And my intention was what I just described to you. I was noticing like. In my mind, 
for a whole host of reasons, because of certain circumstances and situations that had happened, because of the circles I was swimming in. Police equals bad, it equals wrong. And I'm right about this. And I, I remember, you know, there was just these phases of getting worked up and this narrative would be so strong. So I did this uh, ride-along. And that one night with that police officer was so revealing to me when I had the spirit of like, I am here just to understand wasn't there here to argue or anything like that, just to understand the voice of another with wise attention, especially the sensitivity, the causes and conditions that gave rise to his particular voice, his particular view. And I remember asking him about his family. I love hearing about people's families. And he came from this family. He was... I mean, I should say, he seemed like a, he seemed like a young kid, <laughs> a young guy. And he came from this family where there was this deep value of doing the right thing for your community. He wanted to do the right thing. He grew up in a family that was working to do the right thing for community. And here he was, the more I heard about his job, he had a job. The salary was actually not that good. He wasn't making good money. He had incredibly poor training for what he was doing. The job I found out in just a few hours was amazingly stressful. He had very little emotional intelligence combined with almost no emotional support. And then, right next to his hands, was a gun and a taser. And I I remember just in that one evening, this is like a few hours, it was like going from here, a tragic situation, and then driving over to some situation he got a call from, from some kind of you know, horrible human behavior. And then we ended up, invited, I don't know why he did this, he invited me in somebody's house. There was like this chaotic and, and unclear and confusing kind of argument going on that I could see he was just bewildered and confused by. All of us were. We had no idea what was going on. And it just went on and on like that. And I remember towards the end of my time with him, it was like I could feel the frustration. And it was not the frustration that comes with conflicts, but rather the frustration of being trapped in a cage. It's like I could feel like, oh, wow, 
he's trapped in this cage, caged by notions of what it means to be a man and the biases that come with that. Caged by notions of how to understand and address violence and conflict. It was a cage, a cage of greed, hatred, and delusion on a systemic level that he was trapped in. And just that, it was so helpful for me to understand that and take that in because of the perception I had. And again, not as a way of justifying or condoning anything that he did. It wasn't about that. It was about understanding. And also, me being sensitive, not as a way of invisibilizing the views of other people trapped in these situations who have far, far less power than he does. This, too, is important to keep in mind. Rather, it was just a way of understanding. To understand with compassion. To really hear the voice of another with wise attention. When I listen like this, it allows my heart not to get trapped by these binaries like some oversimplistic right and oversimplistic wrong, and instead to reside in a wise heart that's filled with compassion. And this is why I wanted to slow down with just this sense of I am right, both when it's strong and it's weak, because my mind can start to bifurcate the world in a way that I don't find helpful, in a way that I don't find that's onward leading. And I I feel like when I'm in tune with having at least the willingness to hear the voice of another with wise attention in this way, it guides me. It guides me as I stumble along this path to to find a, a, a more skillful way of being with the challenges that are inevitable to living in this world. So may we learn to hear the voice of another with wise intention for the benefit of all beings. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Just sit for uh, a minute here.